if you have uh, been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been in this series called Love War, and this is our fourth week. And tonight, there's one overarching question. So you're going to get kind of the whole sermon in one little snapshot right here in the very beginning. Paul is asking you this question. He wants to know what type of life are you leading? Are you leading a life of freedom or a life of chaos? And he's going to kind of define those things for you. He's going to say that a life of freedom looks like a life that is geared and focused and directed at God's love and then resulting in love of others. And then a life of chaos will be a life that is geared towards and directed at self-love, an overview of how much to care for your own personal gain and your personal comfort and to love yourself at the expense of not only others, but but God as well. But before we jump into this passage, as we've been working through 1 Corinthians, you know, we've We've been moving through this book pretty quickly, and there's a lot in all of these different chapters. And so we kind of have to to know where we've been to see where we are tonight. And so if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to start bringing your Bibles uh, to church on Sunday night. But if not, you have a phone. So everyone has a Bible. Congratulations. And you can go on there and and check out the Bible app. But if you want to pull up chapter 8 as we kind of move to chapter 9 here, it's important to know what Paul is talking about. And so in chapter 8, Paul is discussing a very practical issue in the life of the church. The church is having an issue of wondering whether or not it's okay for them to eat food sacrificed or, or given to idols in worship. And so what would take place is this culture in Corinth, right? There's all these different religions, all these different belief systems, all these different practices. And so in the pagan temples, they would bring animals and different kind of meat, and they would, they would give it in worship. But then they would take that meat, and they'd sell it in the marketplace. So they have a question, like, is it okay for us to eat that and to buy it? And so Paul tells him in chapter 8, he says, listen, it is okay. It is not an issue. You can eat the meat sold in the marketplace that has been, you know, given to idols and other gods in worship. But he says this. If you are with another brother or sister in Christ, or you're you're just with someone that has a a hard time watching you eat that food, or they do not want to eat the food because they think it's wrong, there's something in their conscience that says, I don't feel comfortable with this, then out of love for them, you should refrain from eating. Though you are completely free to eat the meat, you can go to the market right now, you can buy the meat, you can eat it, but if you're with somebody that has a hard time with that, they struggle with that, Because you care more about them out of love, you should refrain from eating. And then in chapter 10, he gives another little caveat. He says, okay, if you're in the pagan temple and they're sacrificing animals and they're eating the meat in the temple, don't do that because then you'd actually just be participating in the worship of other gods. Kind of self-explanatory, but he says, don't do that. If it's in the marketplace, you can eat it as long as you're not with people that feel uncomfortable with it because out of love for them, you should refrain And then in chapter 9, Paul, working up to our verse, starting verse tonight in verse 23, he begins to defend his apostleship. So he moves from food to sacrifice or given to idols, and he starts to talk about his leadership. Because here's what's happened in the church. As we saw in week one, the church had all these different factions, right? They were narcissists, and so they had all these little groups of people that thought this is how church should be, this is who our leader should be, and they made all these decisions on how they should govern their church, how they should live their life. And a lot of people were pro-Paul, but more people were pro-Apollos, another pastor, or pro-Peter, another pastor and apostle. But what we see in this chapter is that a lot of people were actually anti-Paul. 
they, they wanted nothing to do with him. They thought that he was a, a false apostle, that he was not their pastor. They didn't want to listen to him. They wanted nothing to do with his leadership. You have to take a moment, right, and imagine how this feels to Paul. Paul is a man who uh, has had an incredible conversion, right? He was looking to, to destroy and to kill and to imprison as many Christians as possible, and he meets Christ. His life is changed, and now he's given his entire life to the gospel that people might come to trust in faith in Jesus Christ. So much so that Paul's never going to have a family. He's never going to get married. He knows that. He's been called to be single. Paul is moving from town to town to town. He's a nomad, right? Because he's just planting churches in all of these different places. And imagine Paul arriving to different towns. He doesn't know whether or not he's going to be welcomed or whether he's going to be ridiculed or whether he's going to have to leave as quickly as possible because people want to kill him. He is imprisoned. He is tortured. He is hungry. I mean, he, his life is a struggle. And three years ago, he plants this church in Corinth. And he thinks that the, these people are his friends, and then he finds out that they don't want anything to do with him. They, they're not, he's not their pastor. He, they don't trust his leadership or his guidance. They are even saying that you're not an apostle. So the question is why? How in three years has this taken place? Well, it actually has to do with the food sacrificed idol situation because the people in the church have been observing Paul. And here's what they've noticed. That sometimes Paul eats the food that has been given to idols that's sold in the marketplace. Sometimes he eats it, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he refuses and refrains. And so the church and the believers in the church are thinking to themselves, listen, that is not how a pastor is supposed to be. That is not how an apostle is supposed to be. They're supposed to be consistent. And Paul is inconsistent in their view. They think he's two-faced, that Paul is just changing his stripes depending on the situation or the people group, to kind of fit in. He wants to feel comfortable. He wants to be accepted. He wants to be liked. And so he's changing his behavior and his stance. And so they say, listen, we can't, we, we can't trust you. We can't trust who you are. And what Paul is going to say to them and is going to say to us is, listen, he's not two-faced at all. Actually, rather, he's strategic and very thoughtful and he tells them in the very first verse here, he says, let me explain to you why I changed my behavior. It's actually not self-serving. It's God-honoring. The very first verse, 23, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So here's what Paul is saying. You want to know why I changed my behavior? You want to know why I act differently with different people? It's because... The gospel motivates me to do that because my desire is not to generate a blessing for myself or to create a comfortable situation or to be accepted per se. Actually, I want to remove every obstacle so that people can come to see Jesus Christ through me. And so if I'm with people that eat the meat, I'll eat the meat. And if I'm with people that don't want to eat the meat, I won't eat the meat. I'm not two-faced. I'm actually motivated by the gospel. This is challenging, right? His example. Because what his example is, is he's saying, I care more for the comfort of other people than I do my own personal comfort. I am free to eat the meat whenever I want, but sometimes I choose to restrain myself and to not out of love for another person. See, the, the inclination of our heart is not that. I don't know if you're like me, but the inclination of our heart is to choose what we want, what I want, because I have the right and the freedom to do so. 
It is, it is to create a comfortable situation for myself. It is to increase personal gain by the choices that I make. And Paul is showing an example to the church that is the opposite. See, we are people that change our stripes a lot, right? We're like chameleons. We, we change depending on the situation or the people that we're with. And I think all of us probably resonate with middle school being the time that this is in overdrive, right? Middle school, you're a different person every day. Every single day, you're a different person. I remember in middle school that I was, uh, you know, big into Pokemon cards. Any, any Pokemon card people out here? You know, I'm not going to out you. Some people still play the app on their phone. Apparently, that's still a thing. But I just found that out tonight. But in middle school, Pokemon cards were the thing. And I was like, man, I loved collecting them. And I remember coming to school one day, and I was showing off my holographic Zapdos. You know what I'm talking about? And I was trying to show them, like, listen, look what I got. And they're like, don't you know that Pokemon cards are for kids? I'm like, yesterday it wasn't. What happened? Well, apparently overnight there was a change where no longer were Pokemon cards cool. It was now chain necklaces. And so, you know what I had to do? I had to go to the card shop, sell my Pokemon cards, get some money, go to Swap Shop Flea Market in Broward, buy myself a nice thick chain necklace so I could fit in the next day. You know what I'm talking about. And then I just moved to the next thing. This was middle school. But we got to be honest, right? It's not just middle school. It's not just high school when we, we change who we are to fit in and to increase our level of comfort or for personal gain. I'm, I'm going to share with you something that I've never admitted before, okay? So in college, I met this guy that was into film, not movies, film. There's a difference, okay? And I thought, this is really cool. Like, this guy is cool, man. He's in a film. I never even heard somebody use that terminology. It's like a marketable trait. And I want to be friends with him. I want to fit into this crowd. I want to be in the film, you know? And so here's what that meant. You know, I, I had to go back. I had to watch all of the classics so I could be up to date. I went to Walmart all the time because they had those huge bins, you know, where they have like $2, $5 movies and you could go through them and you find a little gym. Spent way too much money in those bins at Walmart in college buying all these movies so I could critique them and analyze them. I went on forums so I could learn the lingo. You know, you got to know the lingo. You got to know how to talk. And then I also had a pre-made list of actors. Everybody in the film has a pre-made list of actors and everybody has Daniel Day-Lewis as one of the greatest actors in that list. And then you also have to use the word film instead of movies. You can't say, I'm going to the movies. I'm going to watch a film, right? That's how you say it. And a perfect example of this for me was a movie called The New World. Have any of you guys seen this? There's a movie. Let's see. None of you guys were film snobs. So The New World is uh, with Colin, Colin Farrell, and the director is Terrence Malick. And... I look, went on IMDb this week to look at some of the reviews, and this guy, John Keesner, I don't know who this guy is, but he sounds a lot like I would have sounded, okay? Here's what he says about the new world. He says, the new world is nearly flawless, and the beauty of Malik's direction adds to the argument that the film could still be considered aesthetic. I didn't even know what that was until I began to study film. Much has been lost in the last 30 years, but Terrence Malik sticks with what he knows, while some people may complain about this movie are the long silences, the actionless movement, and the poetic voiceovers, but this is what Malik does. He's a modern transcendentalist. What he does with film is comparable to what Emerson did in writing. The color is naturalistic, and the sounds are earthy. I mean, what does that even mean? But that's, that was me. That was me, right? That's what I would say. Like, the sounds are so earthy, you know, just flawless. 
But here's what most people think when they watch the New World. Captain Hook 13, he gives it to us, okay? Captain Hook 13 says this, quite possibly the most boring epic ever envisioned. If you like no dialogue, lots of trees, swirling random cameras, trees, grass, silence, and trees, then this movie is for you. It's a mind-numbing two-plus hours that you'll never get back, and you might actually hate yourself. That's how most people think about the new world. For the film lover, you know, it's flawless, transcendental, I don't know. But see, what happened to me was it wasn't necessarily a positive result of me changing my stripes, right, and, and kind of fitting in and becoming a film lover. Now, I learned a lot about movies, so that was a positive. But the negative was I never actually watched movies for enjoyment like I watch movies now. It was to analyze and to critique so that I could sound impressive when I talked about the new world and then looked down on people that thought it was boring. But maybe you've never, you know, become a film lover, obviously, because you've never seen the new world, right? But every one of us changes our stripes, and we still do, even now, right? We change how we talk, we change how we act, we may change how we dress, because we want to fit in to certain people, into our office, we want to fit in culturally, we want to look trendy. We may change what we do and how we spend our time or what we do with our money. We may change our political opinions or we uh, may never share our political opinions. We may hide the fact that we're people of faith because we know what that could cause. Or we may downplay the faith that we have because that could be an uncomfortable situation. We change our stripes. We're like a chameleon, right? Trying to fit in. Because here's what all of us to varying degrees are motivated by. FOMO. You know what that means? Fear of missing out. FOMO, right? We're motivated by this. We, we know that life is short, right? We are told explicitly and implicitly, life is short. You need to live it up. You're only here once. And so you need to choose all these different things and have all of these experiences so that you have a good life and do not make the wrong mistake. Just run after your own passions and desires, because we're fearful of missing out on life. So maybe you're not, you know, having FOMO after not attending Ultra this weekend, but maybe when Miami Spice comes, right, you're like, if I don't go to at least five restaurants, I'm going to feel like I missed out. Or maybe your, your fear of missing out is that you're not going to achieve the level in your career that you want. Or maybe, as we talked about last week, that you're, you're fearful that you're going to be single, or maybe you're fearful that you're not going to have the family that you imagined or the lifestyle that you imagined. Or maybe you're fearful that you're not going to be able to travel like you want, have the certain experiences that you desire. And like we all have FOMO on some level and it motivates our decisions. It motivates how we act and it motivates how we change ourselves to fit in. And Paul is saying here that you're to be like me, not concerned with yourself and your personal comfort and personal gain, but instead to be concerned about others. And for us, if we're honest, if I'm honest, oftentimes I am much more concerned that I'm going to miss out than someone else is going to miss out. I'm much more concerned about myself. And Paul says, listen, you need to understand that, yes, I change my stripes and I change my behavior, and I may even talk a little bit different at times, but the reason I do is because I want other people to come to see the gospel. I want them to share in the blessing of the gospel with me. I am fearful that other people will miss out on the gospel. That's what motivates my decisions. It's not that I'm fearful that I'm going to miss out. It's I'm fearful that they're going to miss out on Christ. 
That's a challenge, right? That's a challenge. How do you live like this? I mean, how do you actually live this way as Paul gives us the example? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of an insight into his life. And what he's implying here is that this is to be your life as well. He tells you in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in every race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He compares himself to an athlete. And specifically to a runner or to a boxer. You see, Corinth, this would have been very... They would, they would have connected with this analogy because Corinth had the second largest games in all of the world, second only to the Olympics. And two of the main events in Corinth were running and boxing. And so Paul is saying that you are, are assuming that I'm inconsistent, but you need to understand how I think about my life. I live my life like an athlete, like a runner. And a runner does not run aimlessly. When you watch a race, it's not a whole bunch of people lined up and they shoot the gun off and then you just run wherever you want. There is, there is a target, right? You all are running in a lane to a direction and you are aimed at something. So that, that's how I live my life, Paul is saying. I'm like a runner. I'm aimed at something. Because I'm like a boxer. Boxers don't just punch the air because if they did, that'd be tiresome and be pointless. But when you watch a boxer, a boxer is thoughtful. They're thinking about the next move before they take it. They're strategic. He's saying, that's how I live my life. I'm like a boxer. I'm thoughtful. I'm strategic. I'm thinking about what's next. I'm not just randomly making decisions based upon how I feel in the moment. See, obviously, Paul is saying that this is to be how you view your life as well. You're to view your life like an athlete. You're to be like a runner, like a boxer. And he highlights two things here. He says there are two aspects that you need to have as a part of your life, just like an athlete does. Discipline and self-control. You have to be disciplined and you have to be self-controlled. You have to remember the context of this letter. And we've talked about this if you've been with us. Paul's been discussing freedom, right? He's been talking about what does it mean to be free? And he says, just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's beneficial. It doesn't mean that it's good. He's he's helping the church understand through this letter what Christian freedom is. Christian freedom is not the right to do whatever you want whenever you want. Christian freedom is by grace through faith in Christ, you have no more fear, you have no more anxiety about what is awaiting you. You know that your relationship with God is sure because of Christ. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. Your sins have been removed and forgiven because of Christ. And now you are free to choose But not just free to choose whatever you want, free to choose what is good. Because God's word and his truth helps you to understand what is good and what is beneficial. And so he's saying here that Christian freedom actually involves discipline and self-control. See, freedom is a big word for us, right? It's a word that we cherish and we hold to. We will fight for freedom. And we use different kind of words often in our culture, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of choice. 
But here is the underlying view in our culture of what it means to be free. Here's what culture would define freedom as. Freedom is the right to choose without restraint. That's freedom. There's no discipline. There's no self-control involved. It is that if you are truly free, you have the right to choose without any restraint. You are free to choose what you value, how you talk, how you dress, how you act, how you express yourself. Now, those may be freedoms, right? Those are great freedoms. But is freedom really just simply the right to choose without restraint? Because if you believe that, and if you live that way, to where you think that freedom means that I can just choose whatever I want without any restraint, then what will end up happening is you'll actually lose your freedom. You'll become enslaved because we live in a world of consequences. And so if you just live your life choosing whatever you want, however you feel, whatever kind of strikes you in the moment, because you have no restraints and you're free, then you end up being enslaved to your choices, right? Every addiction is created because someone believes they are free to choose without restraint. And then addiction comes forth and you're enslaved to that. Greed overtakes you when you say, you know, no, I'm free to choose my career and I am free to choose money above all things. And then you become enslaved to your career and you become enslaved to money and greed becomes a driving force in your life. And broken relationships take place because one or both parties say, you know what? No. Discipline, self-control. Now I'm free to choose what I want to choose without restraint. And it destroys relationships. You see, we live in a great nation with many freedoms, and we are very blessed and privileged to be here. But we may live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, but we as people, and I myself as well, we do a really good job enslaving ourselves to the prerogatives and the pressures of culture. We very cowardly change our stripes to fit in and for personal gain and to increase our level of comfort because we have this view that freedom is the right to choose without restraint. And Paul is saying, listen, you need to understand something, that I live my life like an athlete. And I am free because of Christ, but freedom actually involves discipline and self-control. If you've ever seen a professional athlete, it is incredible. It is visible freedom, right? If you watch a runner run, you're watching, you're like, how does it look so effortless? They can run that fast. You watch a boxer and you think to yourself the quickness and the precision and how strategic they are. It's incredible. You watch a gymnast do stuff on a beam that I can't even do on the floor. You watch a point guard and how fluid they are. A defense alignment with the power that they have. It's terrifying, actually. You watch athletes perform and there is visible freedom. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to behold. But see, no athlete just becomes this beautiful example of what the human body can do by just saying, you know what? I'm going to be a point guard today. Yeah. I'm going to be a gymnast. I'm going to climb up on this beam and I'm going to start flipping around. No, you'll die. That's what will happen. Right? It doesn't, that's not how it works. You can't just say, I'm, I'm free to choose without restraint. So today I am going to be a boxer. And then you go to a gym and you have a concussion. Right? It's the same, same is true of 
music, right? You could come up here after and say, you know what? No, I'm going to be a guitar player today. Brandon, can I have your guitar? Watch this. It's going to sound horrible. Because in order to be free, in order to, to really be able to exemplify what freedom looks like visibly in your precision and power and, and using your body in a beautiful way athletically or on a guitar or a piano where you can really master it and you're free to play it how you want. It, you have to be disciplined and you have to be self-controlled. You have to be thoughtful about your routine, your diet, practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing over and over and over again. Your life is about discipline and your life is about self-control if you really want to have that level of freedom. Paul is saying that I'm like an athlete and I am free, but it does not mean that I don't have discipline and self-control with my passions and with my desires and with my thoughts. I am a disciplined person, but yet I am free. And he says this, this is also something that's very important about freedom. It is aimed at something. And he's saying it's aimed at a prize. And most athletes are aiming for something that's perishable. He says the wreath, right? They'd put this beautifully adorned flower and branches around the neck of the winner. And he says, I'm not running for something that's perishable. That thing is going to die in a few weeks. I'm running for something that's imperishable, that will never end. And so that's why I'm disciplined. That's why I'm self-controlled. That's why my freedom looks a little bit different than the culture's view of freedom. That's why I change my behavior out of love for other people, not for personal gain and comfort. Because I'm aimed at something and it's imperishable. The question is, what is that? He tells you in the very first verse, right? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. What I'm aimed at is because the gospel has given me and enlightened me to truth. And that's this, that what is awaiting Paul and what is awaiting you as a person of faith is that you are going to be united with your creator. You are going to be with God. And God's love and the power of his love has driven out this desire to only run after things that are perishable, but instead to run after the thing that is imperishable. The fact that you are forgiven, loved, and accepted by God and you will be with him. And so he's saying, I I live my life for the gospel that other people might come to know that because the imperishable is much more important than the perishable. The front of your worship program, there's a quote, but the very last line has a really powerful line. It says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's by Thomas Chalmers. This is what Paul is getting at in this passage. He's saying that when the gospel becomes something that isn't just in your mind, You don't just say, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm going to be with God. But you allow it to sink into where it becomes a part of all of who you are. It overtakes your heart to where you realize, no, my life is about more than just achieving and accumulating and enjoying perishable things. It is aimed at something imperishable. The direction that I am running is towards eternity with, with the God that loves me. When that goes from your mind to your heart and it becomes all of who you are, that it actually dispossesses your heart of its natural inclination. And what is your heart's natural inclination? What is my heart's natural inclination? It is to care for myself. It is to try to generate and create my own blessing. It is try to run after only things that are perishable. It is to have freedom without restraint. It is to change my stripes according to what makes me comfortable. But when you allow God's love and his power and the truth of the gospel to overtake your mind and your heart, 
you begin to say, maybe I should be living like an athlete, strategic and thoughtful in my relationships, disciplined and self-controlled, understanding that freedom looks a little bit different than I originally thought. So you, you think about this, and, and if you're honest, right, we're going we're to be completely honest right now. You're thinking to yourself, that sounds great, right? It sounds really good. Running after the imperishable freedom with discipline and self-control, and I'm going to care about others more than myself. But if you're really honest, and if you share what you're really thinking, and if I share what I'm really thinking, I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. I'll be honest, even as you were talking, Carter, I was thinking, I care a lot about perishable things. Like a lot. And, you know, I want the imperishable too, you know, of course. But I don't know if I can do this whole like caring for other people and caring for their comfort and loving other people more than loving myself and being disciplined. And so, I mean, it's a lot of stuff that you're telling me. And it's hard for me to make any of these decisions. And I I don't sense it. It's really a difficult thing. Well, see, it's the same thing of the church in Corinth, here's what they thought. They thought as long as they were engaged in Christian worship, they had this elevated view of the sacraments. They said, as long as we're taking the sacraments, as long as we're going to church and we're doing religious things, then we are free to do whatever we want. We are free to choose whatever we want in our life. But as long as we do the religious thing, then we're good. And look how Paul closes this section. He says to them in verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's saying, be very careful with your assumptions. You're assuming, church, that if you just are religious in some ways, you can do whatever you want with the rest of your life. And he's saying, be careful, take heed, because it could be a trap door. You may fall with that thought process. And instead of getting into the weeds and kind of deconstructing their faulty thinking, Paul turns to the positive. And I love how he ends this section. Look at verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So he says, I understand. It's not easy. It's not easy to live like an athlete. It's not easy to care for others more than yourself. It's not easy to want to share in the blessing of the gospel with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family instead of just generating your own blessing. It is not easy to run after that which is imperishable instead of just wanting to create and enjoy perishable things. It's not easy. There is a lot of temptation. But look what he says. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That God understands that you will be tempted. And notice that what what Paul is implying is that God is there in the midst of your temptation. It feels like oftentimes when you're tempted, right? And you, that God is really far away. And you have to get yourself clean to come back to God. Paul is saying that God is actually there in the midst of your temptation. If you'll just acknowledge that he's there. And then he says, what does God do for you? Because he's faithful. He provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Because life is a struggle. It is a life of temptation. But Paul is saying, listen, what I've come to understand, what you need to understand, church, what I, Carter, need to understand is that, yes, life is a life of temptation, but God is there in the midst of it. And he is faithful to me. And he provides a means of escape so I can actually live as I've been designed to live, which is not running for perishable things, but the imperishable. 
It is not just caring for myself, but it's caring for others. It is not just concerned with generating my own blessing, but it should be about sharing in the blessing of the gospel with other people. Friedrich Nietzsche, a famous philosopher and atheist, of all people coined the phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson, a a well-known pastor, now uses this phrase, but I want you to read this. This is from Friedrich Nietzsche. He says, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should always be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results, as has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. This is what Paul is saying in chapter 9 and 10. And what Nietzsche, ironically enough, found as a universal truth. He's saying that life is about a long obedience in the same direction. Life is about running towards something. It is geared towards something. And it is about obedience. It takes discipline and it takes self-control. And it's a run. It's a race to that destination. But what Nietzsche didn't understand is what Paul is saying is that it's not an aimless run. It's not a run that is just decided upon where you want to go. Paul is saying that your life is to be directed at the imperishable gift that is waiting you. It should be aimed at God. It should be motivated by the gospel out of love and concern for others that others would come run alongside of you in this long obedience in the same direction as you're working through temptation, knowing that God is there next to you, faithful to you. And so the question that we posed in the very beginning Paul is leaving you with, and he's leaving me with, and and that's this. Are you living a life of freedom? And the life of freedom is a life that is directed at God, is motivated by the gospel, and is concerned with sharing in the blessing of Christ and his word with other people? Or is your life a life of chaos, which is motivated by a love of self? It is aimed at creating and generating personal and perishable things that can be enjoyed momentarily and is not concerned at all with other people. It's just concerned with you. The question is, what life, which life are you leading? Let's pray.